we've always taught that when you come for worship, the purpose of worship is to worship and to pour your whole self into it, regardless of, of where you're at, what you're feeling like, what the week's been like, what your mood is like, whatever. And when we do that, when we make that commitment, and the sense of God's presence here this morning was such that I believe we did that. When we do that, God, God, God just shows up and does great things. And, and uh, Annie has a testimony that I've asked her to share that just happened this morning. Um, it's really cool. So Annie, will you just share that with us? Uh, this morning I woke up and I was really sick. I, um, about a year ago I had some problems, stomach problems, and I haven't had any problems with them for about a year, but this morning I woke up and with some really sharp pains in my stomach again. And um, it was so bad that I didn't know for sure if I could make it here if I drove here. And uh, when I got here, I was running late and I was frustrated and I was really in a lot of pain. And I came out to worship and I stood next to one of my friends and I was just like, I don't think I can make it through this. And um, I started to, to worship and just praise God. And as I did, I felt the sharp pains that were in my stomach just begin to fade away and just flow out of my body. And I was completely healed, and there was no more pain, and I haven't felt any pain since. And I just really want to praise and worship God just for his healing power when we worship. Amen. Amen. Praise God. God is good. God is good. This morning, we're ending our summer series. We've finished it already, and we're beginning our regular study of the Word of God. It seemed fitting to, as we get into this fall year and go through another year of, of uh, studying a book of the Bible, finishing up the one that we started last year, um, to lay some foundational stuff again and to talk about the Word of God and the role it has in our life, the role it will, at least it should have in our life. I have a couple passages I want to read. Uh, two of them are found in the bulletin and a third is not. From the bulletin, or if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which simply says this. Faith comes from hearing. Faith comes from hearing the message. Something about the message builds faith, apparently. And the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not, no way, return to me empty. I threw in the no way there. But will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. It will accomplish all that I desire and the purpose for which I have sent it. Finally, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It's active and living and penetrating. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that your word, as you promised it always would, I pray your word would come alive right now and that uh, it would take on a life of its own that would be infused by your spirit. And that, Lord, is my very fallible human and kind of tired thinking uh, puts together words, Lord. I pray, God, that you would uh, generate it and that you would write it into our hearts and, our, and, and lives and, and, and minds and do the changing that you need to have, have changed. Lord, I pray, God, that you would make us people who are just in love with your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. The word of God. When I was in grad school, I, I, I purposely went, a lot of you know, when I did my seminary training, I purposely did not go to any um, evangelical institutions. 
And I don't recommend that for most people. It's just um, I always have been a glutton for punishment, and I love a good fight, and I learn best when I'm being attacked. And that's a little strange, but... Um, and so I knew that I would learn best if I went to an institution that would uh, really try my faith and put me through the ringer. And my conviction is, and, and it always has been, that if what you're believing is true, you have nothing to fear. That truth can stand up to anyone's criticism. It can be subjected to any test. Anyone's scrutiny, it will stand up. So I went to Yale Divinity School. And then later on I went to Princeton. And especially at Yale, I found my faith as I wanted it to be, so I thought, very much tried. And there were periods of time, about three or four in particular, where because of the environment I was in, because of the teaching I was getting, just because of the atmosphere I was breathing more than anything else, I began to have very serious reservations about the Bible. I had trouble believing that it was God's Word. In fact, to be honest with you, it always struck me as a fairly strange belief. Something you'd see on a Monty Python movie or something. This is the Word of God. Here it is. You know, uh, the very words of God are right here. It's like the gourd, the gourd, or, or, or you know, something. It's not, it seems kind of archaic, ancient, unmodern to believe that the Bible is, is the Word of God. So at seminary, I, it, was, I was, it was really tested. I, it began to strike me as a very odd belief. There were a lot of odd things that I found I'd always known in the Bible, but they struck me as odder, you know, uh, odder, uh, more odd. Uh, the, the parting of the Red Sea, the uh, axe head floating, a guy with long hair getting strong, getting his hair cut and losing his strength. Very weird, bizarre thing that normally we don't go around believing, but here it is in the Bible, and we're supposed to believe it. And I got to talking to myself saying, I don't know if I can do it anymore. I don't know if I can believe this. Then on top of that, I had professors who were showing me all the mythological background of the Bible and that this is myth and that is myth and this is this great story and da-da-da-da-da-da. There's all sorts of contradictions and problems and whatnot. And a number of times I got to the point where I just thought to myself, I don't think I can believe this any longer. I came close to rejecting that belief several times. Several things kept bringing me back to the faith that I hold in the Bible as the Word of God. And I really believe with all my heart, though it still strikes me as an odd belief, I believe it. The fact that it's odd in some ways only confirms it because most things that are true are really odd. Try to figure out the theory of relativity, for example. The world's a weird place. So if you've got a true theory about it, it's probably going to be odd. So the very oddness of the Bible is one grounds for thinking it's true, but never mind that. It's funny, I can make a virtue out of a vice. Several things kept on bringing me back to the Bible as the Word of God. One was my experience. My life had been radically transformed through a faith in Jesus Christ that I found in the Bible. The Bible itself tells this, par- this parable about how a guy, he, when, he, when he finds some jewel in the field, he buys the whole field. And I had found this jewel in the Word of God, and my heart's inclination was to believe the whole thing. And I knew even from experience that when I went to the Bible in faith, it ministered to me in ways that I just could not explain. Going to the Bible discouraged, I'd come away encouraged. Confused, I'd come away with insight. It just acted like a book that wasn't an ordinary book. I couldn't adequately explain that. But there were other things as well that went into this. And a second thing is this. I saw firsthand the consequences of what happens if the Bible is not the Word of God. Even among those who are training for ministry, to go into ministry, who don't hold that the Bible is the Word of God, but just sort of a nice, inspiring book, I saw firsthand among my colleagues the consequences of believing that. My way of thinking, there really isn't any other good candidate out there, and so if, if this isn't the Word of God, quite simply, we are in a very confusing reality, a confusing world. We're confusing people with no sure answers. 
what the heck is going on here. We don't know what we're living for. We don't know what we're dying for. We don't know what is true. We don't know what is false. We don't know what is right. We don't know what is wrong. And it's anyone's guess, anyone's theory as to what's going to be going on here. Your guess is as good as mine. And if there is no anchor, if there is no solid point that we can rely on unconditionally and depend on as a source for guidance, then, in fact, we are just in a tremendous storm-tossed sea that has no bearings whatsoever. And what you get is a morass of opinions, all of which you have to assume are equally valid. Some would still try to retain a form of Christianity amidst all this. This is how most of the people that I was studying school with operated. They wanted to be Christian and it had too much value for them. But what you end up preaching, if in fact there is nothing certain, there's nothing, and no one can absolutely say authoritatively this is right or wrong, what happens is that you end up with a gospel that is just sort of wishy-washy, mashed potato, macaroni and cheese, fishback, salami, whatever. I have no idea what that metaphor means, but it sounded kind of uh, like it you know, conveyed the right picture. You end up saying standing for nothing. What ends up happening, what I saw among these kind of mainstream people who are going into the ministry who held this total relativism is that they'd latch on to the latest left-wing fad. You know how many sermons on gun control I heard when I was at school? Every other sermon was on gun control or doing some kind of good work. That's the gospel. What else are you going to preach on? Gun control. I, mean, I don't care if you're for gun control, but it's not the gospel. But what else is when you talk about some kind of new left-wing project and that's, that's uh, gospel. One sermon I heard, this guy was talking about how despairing life is, how empty. It was actually pretty good up to that point. I was thinking how, how we need, you know, life is so futile and, and there's so much violence or whatever. And then his punchline, his solution was, you need to find something greater than yourself to commit yourself to. Just something. You know what? Uh, some charity organization, uh, a loved one. Wish we know, knew what it was, but something, you know. It's like, God. If that's the best we can do, we've got nothing to preach, nothing to stand for. Let's just give it up. Become nihilistic Buddhists or something. Seeing the consequences of that was enough to lead me to reconsider. Maybe maybe there's something to this. I mean, maybe, man, without the Word of God, we're just in a mess. Maybe there's something to it. But there are other things as well. For one thing, this was a central thing. This was probably the central thing. I always had... A solid conviction, didn't always have, but I arrived at a solid conviction on a strictly historical basis, for historical reasons, that Jesus Christ was no mere mortal. On a strictly historical basis, forget the Bible is the Word of God stuff, but just through history, the historical evidence, I became very convinced that, that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. He was what He claimed to be. He rose from the dead. And I was convinced that He, he had to be the Lord of my life, the Savior of my life. That much I was sure of. But here's the part that really bothered me. In spite of all my professors ranting and ravings to the contrary, Jesus appeared to believe that the Bible was the Word of God. He clearly believed in the Old Testament like that. He anticipated the New Testament, said that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to speak through the power of the Holy Spirit. He quoted Scripture like he was quoting God Himself. He clearly believed that the Bible was, in fact, the Word of God. So here's the problem. If He's the Son of God, how can He be wrong about that? In fact, if I'm going to call Him Lord, how can I correct Him on His theology? Like the Lord, one time, and this is the last time I was really doubting this thing, uh, I, I, I was uh, about 15 years ago now, but the Lord just kind of took me by the chin and said, Stop this, stop this, stop this, stop this. I'm tired of this. That's what he said. He said, in so many words, Greg, you call me Lord, that's great. But do not go around correcting my theology then. I don't care what your professors say. If you want to believe what they believe over what I believe, then call them Lord. 
You may not be able to understand it all. You may not be able to put it all together. It may not make perfect sense to you, but on, the authority, on my authority as the Son of God, as my authority as the Lord of your life, you need to take this as the Word of God. And the only way I can explain away Jesus' attitude to the, to the Bible is by explaining away Jesus, and that I cannot do. There's a number of other interesting things about the Bible that really kind of grabbed me, that kept on leading me back to consider it to be something extraordinary, not just your ordinary human written book. For example, it's got a number of prophecies in it that become meticulously fulfilled that cannot be a matter of coincidence. Ezekiel 26, for example. The prophet Ezekiel writes this uh, prophecy against the, uh, city of, the city of Tyre. The city of Tyre is kind of like New York City today. It was, on a, it was a seaport city. It was a metropolis. It was big. It was thriving. It was stable. And in that situation, Ezekiel says this about the city, that it will be taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to lay siege against it, and he'll conquer it. An unlikely scenario, but 20 years later it happens. And you may think, well, maybe the prophecy was written after the fact, or maybe it was just coincidence. But keep on reading Ezekiel 26, and what you find is this. Ezekiel prophesies that not just Nebuchadnezzar is going to come against it, but many nations are going to wage war on and against the city of Tyre. And then he prophesies this. He says, all of the debris of the city will be thrown into uh, the sea. It will be laid flat as a rock. It will never be discovered. People will not know even where it was. He says that fishermen are going to lay their nets on this rock to dry out their nets. What happens about 200 years after Nebuchadnezzar seizes this city is that a man named Alexander the Great, perhaps the greatest conqueror of all time, comes against the city of Tyre and wants to conquer it. The people in Tyre are afraid of Alexander the Great. His reputation has preceded him, so they, they know he doesn't possess a naval fleet, so they retreat to an island off the coast of Tyre, which was owned by the city of Tyre. It was actually part of the city of Tyre. And all the inhabitants of Tyre retreat on this island. Alexander the Great, now one out of 10,000, 9,999 out of 10,000 generals would have said, ah, leave them go, what do we need them for? Let's go on with our campaign. But Alexander the Great was one compulsive dude. And he would not let any stone be uncovered. He would not let any people be unconquered. He had to get to these people, but he didn't want to put a naval fleet. What's he going to do? He comes up with this ingenious thing. He spends eight years building a walkway out to this island. You know what he does to, what he uses to make the walkway? The buildings of the city. He levels the whole city, pushes it into the water, and builds a walkway out to the island. This is 200 and some years after Ezekiel prophesied all that. He conquers, basically destroys all the inhabitants there and, and populates it with his own people. After that, especially during the Middle Ages, the, the Jews, the Christians, the Muslims constantly fought over that island. They were constantly going back and forth because it was such a strategic place to get to the Holy Land. Many nations came against that in the thousands of years after Ezekiel's prophecy. The, the, the city of Tyre has never been discovered again. No one knows for sure where it is. No one's ever been able to find the, the remains of it because it's somewhere in the Mediterranean Sea. But along the coast where we know the city used to be, there's a bunch of little fishing ports. And the fishermen go out every morning in these little villages. And when they're done, they lay their nets out on the rock to dry. That's the only thing that dry, flat land is good for. What that tells me, folks, is that there's something extraordinary about this book. This is not some kind of Gene Dixon, vague, weird prophecy that someone's going to have a headache in the year 2000 or something like that. This is very specific, way ahead of time. And I don't think there's any way of, of really accounting for how the Word of God can do stuff like that without supposing that it's God-inspired, God-breathed. And when you consider on top of this all the prophecies that pertain to the person of Jesus Christ, where He's going to be born in this little tiny town of Bethlehem. Two, there's two prophecies in the Old Testament that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Where His lineage will come from. He'll come from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. 
detailing who his family, what his family tree is going to be like. There's a prophecy about how John the Baptist is going to be a forerunner of the Messiah. There's a prophecy 800 years before crucifixion was ever invented. There's a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12 where the Messiah, the Lord God Almighty, in fact, says, You shall look upon me whom you have pierced. Now, there was no form of execution in the ancient world that involved piercing somebody except crucifixion, which began just prior to the time of Christ. When Zechariah wrote this, it was 800 years in the coming, and yet we have that there. And then you read Isaiah 53. i got to get off this roll here, but it's good stuff. Isaiah 53, which talks about how the Messiah will die for all of our sins way before anyone ever thought of the atonement. It talks about how he will be killed with criminals, but buried among the rich. Now, isn't that weird? If you're a criminal, you get killed with criminals, and you get buried with criminals. The Messiah shall be crucified with criminals, but buried among the rich. And as you know from the Gospels, that is exactly how things turned out. But all this tells me is this. Though it may be a sort of odd belief, a little weird belief in the modern age to believe such a thing, I think we've got, I think I've got, very good reason for believing that this is not just an ordinary book, but this is in fact the Word of God. Though it may seem strange, though it's got things that I don't even understand, I, I, I can't get it all. And it's got things that appear to me that, you know, do you ever read parts of the Bible and you, and you think, why is that in the Bible? You know, uh, so-and-so slayed so-and-so and they ripped off a pigeon's head 14 times and all that kind of stuff in Leviticus. It's, ah, why is that in the Bible? But you know what? So what if it's a little bit weird? So what if it doesn't fit our little cerebrum, cranium things, brains? Uh, uh, I couldn't think of the word brain. So what if it doesn't fit everything we think? We've got every good reason in the world to believe that it's the Word of God and if we trust it, if we take it, if we believe in it, it will transform us and it will change us. There's a lot of good, I believe there's a lot of good literature in the world, a lot of inspiring literature in the world, and I think it's good to read it. I think it's good to study it. I spend my time doing that. Uh, read the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Vedas, uh, you know, Divine Principles, the Book of Mormon. I don't care. Read them all. There, there's some good ideas there. There's some wisdom there. Confucian, Taoism, Shintoism. There's a lot of good wisdom there, a lot of good insight. There's also a lot of wrong things. But if you want to know what life's about, you really want to have a roadmap as to what, what is what in this weird world in which we live. You want to know how we're supposed to live. You want to know what ultimate reality is like, what God is like, what God expects of you, what, this, what the whole meaning of life is all about. You want to find something that's a jewel that's worth living for, that's worth dying for, that will give your life eternal meaning. You want to, in short, be saved. The one place to look is not in the Upanishads or the Vedas, as good as they might otherwise be. It's in the Word of God. It's in the Bible. Here we have something that is not just a human book. It's written like a human book. It's written by human prophecies. They have human perspectives. But the Bible says, itself says, and we've got good reason to believe it, that it is, in fact, God-inspired. In fact, the word inspired should be translated expired. Because in, in the Greek, it literally means God breathed. God breathed. God exhaled, and there was the Bible. He used human beings to write it. He used historical circumstances to bring it together. But the whole thing is God breathed. It's the Word of God. And I know that in this age, that may sound narrow. I can just picture one of my Yale colleagues sitting in the crowd here this morning saying, Oh, what a fundamentalist. What a narrow fundamentalist. Doesn't even believe in gun control. <laughs> how, can you, how can you say that the Bible is better than the Upanishads, the Vedas, uh, the Rig Veda, and all the other holy books? How narrow, how, how bigoted of you, how Eurocentric. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking the same thing. Why? Everyone's got to decide truth on their own. We all know that. Let me just say a word about that. Just a word and I've got to move on. But the word is this. If I say two and two is four and you say two and two is five, is one of us being more open-minded than the other? I don't think so. There's one right answer to that question. And any number you pick is going to be narrow. 
And not only that, but there's only one right answer, and there's, a, there's an infinity of wrong ones, if you think about it. And concerning anything in this world, there's always going to be one right one, and there'll be an infinity of wrong ones. And you're not narrow-minded for believing that one is right. I just don't get where people think that. What a narrow-minded I believe is when people will not consider all the incredible, solid, persuasive evidence we have for thinking that this book, in fact, is God's Word. It always kills me when, when you hang around people who in this age are so big on tolerance and open-mindedness and no one knows what is right and wrong and true and false and you've got to decide it on yourself. You hang around people like that. But in their own way, they're, they're as fundamentalist as, as the most rigid fundamentalists. You touch their little buttons and pretty soon they come out with some real big absolutes. You know, take their parking space. And, and all of a sudden, it's not a matter of whatever you think is right and whatever, you know. What, one thing that's interested me is this, is this, is this women's conference. The, uh, the, 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 the reports coming out of this women's conference. And I think there's a lot of good things going on there. I think there's some shady things going on there, but that's not what I want to talk about. What interests me is this. I know some of the people that are over there, the leaders in the feminist movement. I studied under, under one of them. And I know that a number of them who go there are thoroughly into this relativism. Truth is relative. Everyone's kind of got to feel their own way. You, you, you define truth on your own. No one really knows. You know, it's all a cultural matter, a preference matter. And they go to this women's conference, and what is amazing to me is that they came out with these documents which say things like, it is wrong, wrong, with a capital W, for these African tribes to do what they've been doing for centuries, and that is circumcising young women so that they'll be more pleasurable to men later on. And it is wrong for people in India, the Hindus, to do what they've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. And that is leaving it to the option of the male to decide whether a, a female baby is going to live or die. And it's wrong, and they list all the things that nobody on earth ever in any place should do for women. And if they do them, they say the United Nations should impose sanctions on those countries. Because this is wrong. Now, here's the point. I agree with them. I agree with them that women should not be treated like that anywhere, at any place, at any time. But how can you believe that? How can you hold that if you also are saying that all morality is culturally relative? How narrow to say that you have the right to tell Indian people in India how to live their life, or people in Africa how to live their life, how to treat their women, or to tell Muslims how to treat women equally when it's been part of their culture, part of their tradition, part of their thinking for centuries, that they don't do that. How Eurocentric, but the point is this. When it comes to their pet issues, they are absolutist. They're fundamentalist. There's a right and there's a wrong, and there's no room in between. The difference is that they don't have a grounds for it. They don't believe absolutes. They're just doing it out of preference. So why is it all of a sudden narrow-minded when you come along and say, you know what, there's, uh, there are absolutes. We're wired, as I believe we are. We're wired to believe in absolutes. I don't think there's a person in this world who doesn't believe that there are some absolute moral principles. you just got to find which ones they are. And they say that they think it's all your opinion, my opinion stuff. But when push comes to the shove, they believe there are absolutes. The question is, do you do it consistently or not? What Christians say is simply this. God didn't create us that way and then leave us down here to say, oh, figure it out on your own, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this inclination that there must be absolutes, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. You've got to figure it out. What the Bible does is it tells us some of the absolutes. It tells us some of the true things against the false things, some of the, the right things against the wrong things. It is the Word of God. It is God's breath. And it's the only thing we've got to stand on. Take away this, and folks, it's just opinion. That is why our covenant here is that we will not preach from the pulpit anything other than God's Word. I've had three calls in the last week. People asking me, I, apparently there's some stuff going on with televangelism about endorsing campaign, uh, certain people going, throwing their hat in the ring for being coming candidates, and they want to know if we're going to endorse any. And the answer is an unequivocal, absolute no. No. You can have all the hot 
not the fiery conviction you want about any candidate you want. But and when it comes to the pulpit, it's all, it's all if, with if, maybe, who knows. Some cancer, but knows. But whatever it is, it's not as unambiguous as the Word of God, which is the one solid thing we have to go on. Now, to say that the Bible is the Word of God means two things. On the one hand, this is going to be fast. On the one hand, it means that we have here divine inf- information. We have here what we need to know to be saved, to live life the way God wants us to live it. Information. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the whole Bible is, the Word of God is God-breathed, and it is profitable for instruction, for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof. That's information. God gave us that. But there's another thing we mean when we say the Bible is the Word of God, and most people don't realize this, but it's equally as important. When I say the Bible is God's Word in that it gives us information, I'm referring to it as a noun. But the Bible doesn't just give us information. If we allow it, it gives us transformation. And now I'm referring to the Bible as the Word of God as a verb. Follow me here. The Bible is not just the Word of God as a noun. It's the Word of God as a verb. It does things. It's got power. I read several of the verses earlier. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. This book is living and it's active. It's not just a once and upon a time thing. It's not that. God breathes His inspiration into this Bible once upon a time. But rather, whenever believers in faith go to the Bible and read it and let it saturate their minds and let it penetrate their hearts, He breathes into them again. He uses this as an active living thing. This is a living book. It's unlike any other book that exists. It's like an organic thing. It's alive. And when we eat it, when we drink it, when we breathe it, when we put it in our minds, it comes alive in our, uh, in our souls. And, he, and Hebrews 4.12 tells us that it is powerful. It's penetrating to divide joint and marrow, soul and spirit, which simply means this. It gets into the very core of our being. It changes us in the center of our being. It penetrates every nook and cranny of our being and changes us from the inside out. It revolutionizes the way we think. It revolutionizes the way we believe. It re- revolutionizes the way we feel. So much of our Christian life is spent trying to do the right thing without any power to do it. We know what we ought to do, but we're not the kind of people that do that kind of thing. We try to avoid sin, but we still crave it. What the Bible is telling us here is that if we want to not just want to do different things, but actually be different kinds of people, to be transformed, to be revolutionized, you need to get the Word of God and let it become alive. Let it become active in your being. Digest it, ingest it, breathe it, and let it transform you on the inside. Jeremiah says this, the Lord says in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29, he says, My word, listen to this, my word is a living fire. And it is a, it is a hammer that will break every rock. It's a fire that will burn up everything I want it to burn up, and it will smash everything I want it to smash. And I don't know about you, but I know that I have got things in my life that need to be burned, and I've got things in my life that need to be smashed. And what the word is telling me is that I can't burn them on my own, and I can't smash them on my own. And a lot of you know firsthand what it's like to keep on knocking your hand against the same rock sin. The rock of unbelief, the rock of depression, the rock of sexual undisciplinedness or whatever. And you can't, you can't smash it. You can't burn it. What the Word tells us is that God has made a provision for us to be transformed, for us to be changed. And the provision is right here in, in this. Psalms, Psalms 107 verse 20 says, God sent forth His Word and He healed them. The Word of God brings healing in our life. Isaiah 55 says the Word of God will go forth. 55 verse 11, the Word of God will go forth. And like snow, like rain, it's going to plant. It's going to find, it's going to cultivate. It's going to water what needs to grow. And you're going to raise up things there. But you take away the water, 
And there's no growth. There's no nothing. So also the Word of God is to be to us like water. It's to be to us like air. It's to be to us like food. And we will not grow as we need to grow without it. We will not grow without it. In this, if you want power, you want power to live as God wants you to live. You want power to have faith that moves mountain. This is the way to get it. There's power in this thing. There's power to produce faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You can't crank off faith on your own, but if you get the Word of God, just begin to breathe it in. Just begin to absorb it. Even when you don't understand it. Just, it's got the power to do that. When you ingest it, it begins to produce faith. It begins to produce love when there is no love. It produces hope where there is no hope. It produces peace where there's anxiety. It gives courage where there's fear. The Word of God does these things. God ordained it to be that. Here's the rub, though. It will not do those things unless we let it do those things. A lot of times I think we treat the Bible like we treat exercise equipment. You know it's coming. People, you know, they think, I'm going to get in shape, man. I got this belly. So they go out and buy an extra cycle and they buy a treadmill and they buy some barbells. They put them down in the basement. And by golly, you know, you feel healthier just having that stuff around, don't you? <laughs> no, it's just like, that was worth it. Thing is, though, nothing happens. You're not one iota healthier unless you get on the extra cycle, the treadmill, and start lifting the barbells. You've got to do something with it, so it is with the Word of God. Having it there on the shelf is not going to do you a bit of good. It's not like this radiates power. No, you've you, you got to you know, you sleep on it. You know, and, you know, that's the, treat, the way they treat these crystals, power crystals, whatever. They sleep on them and they make it stronger. That's not superstition. The Word of God comes alive when you read it, when you hear it, when it goes into your mind. It's only got what it's supposed to, it only does what it's supposed to do when we allow it to do that. Studies show that two out of every three Americans affirm, not only do they know even what this means, but they affirm that they believe the Bible is God's Word. They affirm that. Almost nine out of every ten Americans owns a Bible. Less than one in ten Americans reads it more than five minutes a week. In fact, it's way less than that. Among evangelical Christians, people who classify themselves as evangelical Christians, the rate of reading goes up a lot higher. It's up to three minutes on the average a day. Now, the same group of people will listen to, will watch TV for 1,400 hours this year. They will listen to 29,000 commercials on TV, about another 15,000 commercials on the radio, to say nothing of what they'll see on billboards, what they're going to read in magazines, what they're going to read on the newspaper. Now, ask yourself this question. What do you, why do you think we have trouble being transformed in the way the Word of God says we can be transformed? Why is it that we read so much about victory and power and living and success and, and having power to conquer sin, but we don't see much of it in our life? Maybe it has something to do with that. I don't know. Just a guess. You see, there's a principle that the Bible itself gives us, and that is that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. As a person thinks to their heart, Proverbs 23, 6 says, so are they. And we, be, we, we inevitably, the way we're wired is we... We think in terms of we're influenced by what we see and we're influenced by what we hear. And the Word of God has got 10,000 times more power than any other word out there to transform us. But if we're listening to it less than one ten thousandth as much as we're listening to those other things, what's going to transform us? What's going to change us? It's hard to live in faith when everything that's going into your eyes and mind is faithlessness. It's hard to believe in miracles when everything that's going into your eyes and going into your ears says that miracles aren't possible. It's hard to live for God when you're just being polluted by a world culture, a world view, the pattern of this world that says that there is no God, that this life is all there is. You, you believe it's true, you want it, but it's all theoretical and you don't have the power to live it. What needs to happen, folks, in a nutshell is this. 
We need to obey the Bible. And I say this to inform us, not to shame us. We need to obey the Word when it tells us that we are to meditate on His Word day and night. That's what the Bible says. Over 40 times in the Psalms alone does David say, I meditate on your Word. I delight in your Word day and night. The word meditate means to go over and over and over. To to run the tape, as it were, in, in your mind. To listen to it. To ingest it. To digest it. To make it a part of your being. Psalms 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of the ungodly. The advice, the talk, the worldview, the ideas. Don't walk with those ideas surrounding you. Surround yourself rather with something else. It says, Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly and doesn't sit in the seat of sinners. But his delight is in the law of God. And in his word he meditates day and night. He shall be as the tree that is planted by the waters. But the wicked are not, are not so, so they shall dry up and wither away. The point is this. The way to grow, if you meditate on the Word, if you make this a part of your life, you're like a tree planted by water. This is your water. You've you got it right here. Wherever you go, you can drink of this. And the more you drink, the, 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 the taller you grow, the stronger you get. You take that tree and put it out into the desert. It doesn't matter how much about water it knows. If it can't drink it, it doesn't grow. And so it is with us. The only way we're going to have faith like God wants us to have faith, to move mountains and to see God do the things He wants us to, 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 to see is by making the Word of God a part of our life. Here's a challenge, real quickly. Challenge is I want to encourage all of you. If you're not a believer here this morning, I challenge you to take seriously the Word of God, to consider it, and to make Jesus Christ Lord of your life before you leave here this morning. If you're here and you're a believer, maybe you're a Bible reader, and I want to, I want to uh, you know, implore you with that and, 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 and say keep, keep on with that. But I want to encourage all of us here to, I'm just going to throw this out here, to make the Bible a part of our life 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes a day. Some of you do a lot more than that. For some of you, this is going to be radically new. Now, here's the problem. It is well known, very established, that Americans, while we are the third most literate country in the world, we are at the bottom of, of, of uh, first world countries in terms of how much we read. We are habitual non-readers. We don't like to read very much. We are, we are however, habitual listeners. We spend 65% of our leisurely time listening to things. Okay? Got that? Not only that, but two out of every three people remembers more what they hear than what they read. Not only that, but the average American spends 45 minutes a day in the car, driving 13,000 miles. I feel like a statistician this morning or something. Polls say, but so, spend 1,300 hours in the car. If you were to listen to 1,300 miles in the car, 45 minutes a day, if you were to listen to educational materials during that time, you could get three years' worth of, of, of college teaching, in, no, two years' worth of college teaching every three years, by just by listening in your car. If you were to listen to the Bible being read on a tape, every 45 days, you would have gone, no, every 24 days, you would have gone through the New Testament. Every 90 days, you would have gone through the whole Bible. So here's the thing. We want this, this is, this is a practical thing. There's no money in this for us or anything, okay? This, there's a group out there, though, that has put the Bible on tape. There's a regular just reading of God's Word, and there's also a dramatized, uh, dramatized, dramatized drama version of the Word of God. For a lot of us, reading it just isn't going to be practical. But for a lot of us, getting a cassette player, most of us have that in the car, and listening to it on the way to work, listening to it on the way home, listening to it while we're cleaning house, it's going to be the easiest thing in the world. You don't have to take 20 minutes out of your day just to listen to it, and it will get in there. So we have on those blue cards... This, this thing. If you would like to get that, and I want to encourage all of you to do that, I'd like to begin starting next week. The tapes, all who order the tapes this morning by filling out that blue card, 
By next week, we'll have the tapes here, and you can buy them next week right here. We'll just give them to you. This is a nonprofit organization. These tapes are coming very cheap. There's other versions of them out there, but I think if you check, you'll get they're more expensive. This is really a bare minimum kind of thing because the goal here is to get as many people reading God's Word as possible. Fill out this card and say, next week, I'd like to do a 60-day challenge about the Word of God with this church. Spend 20 minutes a day listening or reading the Bible. And let's get through the whole... In 20 minutes a day, we can get the whole New Testament in 60 days. And let's see what God begins to do in our life. And my conviction is this, that we will see firsthand what a difference it makes to make, to make the Word of God a part of our life. And we'll become lifelong listeners and readers of the Bible. I've got on my desk at home a, a file of testimonies of churches that have used this and have reported what happened. And many times, faith, or, or revival broke out. People testify about having a stronger faith, a stronger love for God, a stronger desire for God. And it, it, in many cases, revolutionized the congregation. I want to make the Word of God the central thing that we are about, the central thing that we are about. And what we're about, if we have to do it individually, is, is taking the Word of God and ingesting it and making it a part of our life. If you want to do that, fill out that blue card. And when you leave, in fact, could the ushers come forward? If you don't have a blue card, uh, they'll be glad to. Uh, uh, there's some ushers there that can do this. Come forward. And just, uh, uh, if you need a blue card, raise your hand, and they'll be glad to give it to, to you. Fill it out. Give to the ushers when you leave, or leave it at the information table. Easiest to leave it, leave it with the ushers. And next week, uh, you order all tapes, and they'll be here, and you just pick them up there. It's $28 for a dramatic version, 18 for a normal version. Let's see what the, what the Lord's going to do. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Without this, Lord God, we are, we are ships tossed to and fro in the midst of a hurricane ocean. But Lord God, your word is a lamp unto our feet. And we want to hide the word of God in our hearts that we may not sin against thee. We want to grow, Lord. We want to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But we cannot do it on, your, on our own. You've given us your word to change us, to revolutionize us just by hearing it. Faith comes by hearing. I pray, Lord, that you would raise up here a people that hunger and thirst for your word, that find delight in your word. Not in our understanding of your word, but just in your word, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that that would be a conviction that we go out of here with, Lord, and that that would be the authority in our minds, on our opinions, in our life, that our life would be guided by your word. Let it be so, Lord. Let it be so, Lord. By the power of your spirit, let it be so, Lord. If there are those here this morning that don't believe... Lord, I pray even as I'm praying right now that you would be moving in their heart and draw them forward, that they may receive you as the Lord and Savior of their, of, of, of their life here this morning. We ask in your name. Amen.